Hello and welcome to episode 818 of The Sleeper and the Bus. It is Tuesday, June 16th. I'm your host, Paul Spohr, and I'm joined not only by Justin Mason, but also a special guest, our very own Eric Loggenhagen. Good morning, guys. How's it going? Morning, Paul. Uh, it's a balmy 106 in Arizona, so... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> ...be encouraged to stay inside uh, and and not catch it. You know, it's we're starting to have a weird increase here, and the vibe in the state is increasingly contentious. So we're just Eric, glad to be... I, I can relate on a lot of that. Um, not quite as hot here in Texas, but very similar, especially during the day. So we kind of already have like a, a de facto summer quarantine of not wanting to go out when it's that hot, but also having a spike in uh, in cases here in the state. So, uh, you know, staying in, avoiding the heat. Justin, what's going on out there in California? It is not 106. That That is for damn sure. Uh, not a whole lot. I don't think, I, I think we're having a spike in cases, but I, I'm staying my ass inside. So, yep. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not too worried about it for my own health. Hopefully, uh, hopefully everybody starts heating some mornings and, and we can let this stuff go away so we can get some actual baseball. That's funny. That's <laughs> what you said about baseball. And that was, I like that. That's a good one. Use yeah. that joke with other people. They will laugh at that. Cause that is, that's biting humor there where you say something that's never going to happen, but you pretend like it's going to happen. I like that. That's cute. I want to be hopeful. I, I am no longer hopeful. I never was, let's be honest, but I started to get a little inch of hopefulness and uh, it went from, oh, 100% baseball to, I don't know, man. I don't think there's going to be baseball. Cool, Rob. You're killing it. I don't want to talk proposals. I don't. We have Eric on. He's a uh, pros- our prospect guy killing it. You know, did the draft coverage, absolutely destroyed, was awesome with it. Deserves a break. Going to get a break soon. You were telling us off air how you're going to get a few days off. Well deserved, but not before we put you through the ringer on some draft stuff related to fantasy. So what do you say we just dive right into these questions and get going? Because despite only being five rounds, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the draft, and uh, I hope you did too, Eric. You ready to start these questions up? Yeah, let's do it. Let's start with the surprise at the top. My, my Tigers announced Spencer Torkelson at third base. I don't know if that was just a formality to uh, to make it so he wasn't the second uh, 1-1 first baseman behind Adrian Gonzalez, or is there some likelihood here that, that he could develop as a third baseman? How likely is it that Spencer Torkelson debuts in Detroit at third base? I think it's highly unlikely. Um, I've been watching Torque since high school. He did play some third base on his varsity team in high school. But even on, like, the NorCal area code team back in the day, like, he was listed as an outfielder. Uh, he he does run pretty well. Like, he moves in space pretty well for someone who's as big and, and strong as he is. But from, like, a defensive footwork, hands and actions point of view, just not a fit at third base for me. I went back and looked at my high school notes from when he was an outfielder. I had a, a, a three on... His arm at that time. Oof. So, uh, so no, like, I do think that this, look, it makes sense for Detroit to, to give it a try. Yeah. One thing about uh, Torkelson that is true is that he's going to give himself the best opportunity of, of staying there. Like, he is a hardworking young guy. So, um, 
you know, like it's worth a shot, but I think at some point it's just going to slow what is ultimately a very fast moving bat. Like you're just going to have to hit the brakes on his big league timeline to try to make this work. His bat is going to be ready for like, say double a much more quickly than his defense would be at third base. If you left him there and maybe that's part of why Detroit is doing it is because it, it puts his timeline better in line, like synced up with what they expect their competitive timeline to be, right? Like this is one of the things that yeah, people can artificially slow them down. Right. Um, So maybe there's some of that to it, but yeah, I just think that he's, he's a first baseman and he'll probably be over there before uh, he puts on a big league uniform. Yeah. I I don't mind them trying it. I just hope it doesn't linger too long. Like you said, and, and, you know, keep him an extra year down somewhere when his bat is is very clearly saying, hey, I'm ready, especially with Miggy coming off the books next year. C.J. Crone only on a one-year deal. First base will be open, ready for Torkelson to take it. You had uh, Ket, or Heston Kerstjad. I'm going to butcher that name for a generation now. So, <laughs> Especially with Keston here, it almost yeah. like a spooner, you know, because yeah. he's got the H and the K. Yeah, very confusing. Go yeah, ahead, I, I'm, I'm going to continuously mess that up. But you had him as a potential Baltimore pick, but it seemed like it just threw everybody's mock draft out the window. People weren't expecting it at large within kind of the prospect community. Uh, how much of a reach was it? Uh, I don't really have it as much of a, as much of a reach. Um, it depends how you look at it, right? So, uh, the first thing is that everyone's, not everyone's mock, but like uh, most of our mocks still did fine, like about average on the whole. Uh, I think, you know, Jim and Keith each got nine in the first round. I got eight, like that's about average, um, for a given year. And it was really just that Baltimore was good at, and really Detroit was too, um, about keeping things close to the vest. Torque said on uh, TV that Detroit didn't call him. The Orioles didn't call Adley Rutschman at all last year. And like they, this is just Mike Elias and the Orioles playing things pretty close. Um, you know, Kerstad made sense to cut with it too. I did have him in the same tier of prospect as Austin Martin and uh, Emerson Hancock. Like I have 50 future value on all of these guys. I did have Kerstad numerically ranked at the back of that tier, but I, that is why it makes sense for Baltimore to want to cut with him. His likely homes were between picks 7 and 12. 12 to Cincinnati was the floor for Kerstad. And so if you give him more than what slot is at any of those picks, which is about $5 million, it's, it makes sense for the player because he's making more than he would have had he gone between picks 7 and 12. And it makes sense for you at 2 because you're getting a player who's comparable in skill to who the other players in play at 2, but you're getting him at a bonus well below slot. And it allowed Baltimore to do uh, more damage to the rest of the draft. And yeah, Kerstad is, uh, you know, it's corner outfield only, but he's performed all three years in the SEC. He's got really excellent vertical plate coverage. So he's not the type of guy who... Uh, is going to get beat by these top of the zone fastballs as we see some like amateur hitters who have these really pretty low ball swings and hit for, hit for power as amateurs uh, like Blake Rutherford get blown up at the top of the strike zone in pro ball. Like Kershaw's going to get to those pitches up. He's got power to all fields uh, and it's a pretty stable hit tool because of what he's done in the SEC. So 
uh, pretty safe high floor pick for Baltimore there at two. And as I said, it let them do a bunch more damage throughout the, the rest of the draft. And so uh, based on that, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, you believe that they maximize that, uh, cutting that deal there with Kerstad by getting Westberg and Haskin uh, with their next two picks. Are, are those the two picks that really benefited from uh, from the deal with Kerstad, or did it even trickle beyond that in the rest of their picks? It's really the fourth and fifth rounders where you see that investment pay off. Okay. Um, I did have Westberg. Westberg I had ranked at 32nd. Uh, so he is probably close to slot. There is a relationship there. Um, I forget the the team personnel who Baltimore hired from Mississippi State uh, within the last year. But yeah, Westberg, Servideo, um, and Haskin are all probably closer to slot. It is Mayo, Kobe Mayo, the fourth rounder, and Carter Baumler, the fifth rounder, who are probably the overslot guys. Mayo is big like six foot four frame huge power for a high schooler he's listed at third base saw him play a lot last summer on the high school showcase circuit i've got him in right field i don't think he's athletic enough to handle third base but it is like a six or seven arm uh so right field makes the most sense for him uh it is this whole draft class really they're all prospects um but yeah as far as where i had them ranked on the board i had westberg at 32 Servideo, their um, their third rounder, who's another guy to watch, Anthony Servideo from Ole Miss, was uh, he was playing out of position as an underclassman. One of the Astros' early round picks from last year, Gray Kessinger, was playing shortstop at Ole Miss. Servideo replaced him to start 2020. He had a new swing, added a leg kick, and Servideo went nuts like for the first month of the season. He's one of these, like, he's he's super-duper cocky. I love it. Like, uh, tons of swag with through video. And, yeah, I think the, the, the new swing is real. He can play shortstop. Uh, not every team was comfortable with this guy because this is, like, it was four weeks of this. And so yeah. not everyone had a decision-maker in to get in and see this. Uh, but I think it's real. So, yeah, this whole, this whole class top to bottom for Baltimore is really interesting. But the guys who Westberg and Haskin are more lower variance college players. Um, Servideo is a high variance college player who's got some serious upside, in my opinion, if what he showed early this season was real. And then the fourth rounder Mayo is like the corner, huge power, like 25 plus home run potential down the line. Um, yes, I see you had yeah. him 67th and he went 103 for Kobe Mayo. So that is a nice payoff there. That they Almost can trickle. For him. Yeah, they can put some of the Kirstead money uh, in into Mayo, and and then perhaps even Baumler, uh, a high school pitcher who went at pick one thirty three for them. So yeah, it looks like Baltimore had a good draft, and they're you know starting to turn their their ship around there um, with a few good drafts and starting to stock the system a bit. They drew they drew a lot of rave reviews for their draft, so uh, I'm not surprised to hear you echo that as well, um, Justin. Yeah, uh, I'm going to steal uh, Paul's question because he's a huge Nick Gonzalez fan, so I, I want to hear what your thoughts on him in Pittsburgh. Do you think he's is going to play second, short, and then what's his offensive upside? Yeah, so Gonzalez is still tough. I saw him I saw him quite a bit last year, right? New Mexico State, it's in. It's close to home for me. The WAC tournament plays their games at the, at the A's. Um, Spring Training Stadium in Mesa, so like 15 minutes from my house. Mm-hmm. So I've seen quite a bit of Nick Gonzalez as an underclassman. 
And then we're supposed to see five games this spring before the shutdown. I ended up seeing one. It was a Tuesday night game against Arizona State. And then really the whole industry saw him on the Cape last summer and then against Texas A&M the weekend after I saw him here in Phoenix, where he faced Asa Lacey and Christian Roa, who were two early round picks. Um, you know, the, you got to kind of toss out the numbers. The elevation at New Mexico State makes everyone's numbers pretty goofy. The Cape performance is, is the real statistical driver that gave teams confidence in his ability to, to hit and hit for power with wood. The TrackMan data uh, underneath, I haven't seen the specifics of it yet, but in talking to analysts about it, from a measurable power standpoint, Gonzalez is, is pretty vanilla. Um, you know, if you were just going to look at his, his track man output to try to put a grade on his raw power, you'd probably put it closer to 50. Uh, so he is generally seen as a hitter with power. I really like the way his hands work in the box. It is similar to Keston hero without quite as much punch, uh, but they work in that same nice little loop that I think makes for all fields contact, a lot of gap to gap stuff. I think he's going to hit for, you know, doubles power at least. It is how he looked against Asa Lacey. That was kind of a problem. He got blown up in that series. It was the best pitching he'd ever seen, like a no doubt big league quality arm. And it was just like him. Uh, it was just you know, one series, but it was not a great look. Um, where he ends up defensively is still tough. Like he'll make some spectacular plays. He boots some easy ones. I think he probably ends up at second base uh, where some of those mistakes can be a little bit more hidden rather than shortstop where you're just seeing more action. Uh, but there is a non-zero chance he plays it short. He seems to have the physical tools to play there. It is just not uh, consistent yet. So um, I would guess it's, it's probably second base. Uh, but yeah, like he's another guy who, if it's a 50 future value prospect for me, he's going to be towards the back of the overall 100. I haven't valued where I've got Ezekiel Duran and the Yankees system valued right now. Okay. And look, I, I, I do love Nick Gonzalez, as Justin points out, but I know the numbers were crazy. And we were really focusing on on smaller things like the Cape uh, as a positive thing. And then, like you said, the, the Texas A&M series and Asa Lacey performance as something that's negative. I wasn't thrilled with him going to uh, Pittsburgh. I was kind of hoping that Nick Gonzalez would go to Colorado so they could ruin him and never bring him up. Uh, that would have been fun to uh, overdraft him for five years in fantasy, thinking this is the year they're going to put him at second. Uh, and then they wouldn't do it. So, yeah, Pittsburgh, not the best but uh but we'll, we'll see i uh hopefully he hits though I, I just i really like him and those those goofy numbers are fun to look at uh let's move on to austin martin because he drew a lot of buzz because he was a legit one one potential um you know a lot of people had the tigers on torque but there there was some martin talk so we know his whole profile made him a one one potential but what kind of fantasy profile did toronto get by by having martin fall to them at five yeah the if you're in an OBP league, then this is like this guy might be one-one uh, from this group. It, you know, Martin's got an elite approach. Again, like Gonzalez, the measurable measurable power is pretty vanilla. Um, the uh, the lift in Martin's swing combined with the approach makes me think that even though he doesn't have huge raw power, that he's still going to hit for power in games. What he does, where he fits defensively, uh, we don't know yet. He played some infield, in, mostly infield in college. He came out this spring at third base, and 
Vanderbilt was here in Phoenix in February to play like one of those four team tournaments at the, the D backs and Rockies spring training stadium. And Martin was not throwing well from third to first base. Like he just could not, there was, there was no carry on his throws over there. Uh, he was, he was one and two hopping throws to first base. And it was shortly thereafter that Vanderbilt moved him to center field. And we really didn't have a chance to see him run around out there and see what it was like if he could really play there. And he wasn't running as well from home to first this spring as he had as a sophomore. So if you take a pessimistic view uh, based on what we saw this spring, it's like, yeah, I'm really only comfortable projecting this guy as a left fielder. But there's still a chance that he plays second base or center field or third base or even shortstop if what the what was causing the throwing issues was like health related and maybe has been remedied during the shutdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like watch where he falls on the defensive spectrum. But yeah, like big time OBP guy who I still think is going to hit for power, even though he doesn't have huge raw, just because he knows what pitches to attack. And the swing is so geared for in-game power that, you know, he'll he'll attack the pitches that he can do damage with. Uh, and I think he's going to produce even though it, he doesn't have giant raw. Man, that that Jays lineup is is really shaping up there, and I'm glad that they didn't, you know, draft for the major league need and say, well, we have to go pitcher here. Uh, once Martin fell to them, I'm sure it made it easy. So uh, I like that pick. I'm eager to see his trajectory. Justin, go ahead. Yeah, <clears throat> who's who's the best uh, fantasy future of the three early pitchers taken out of you know Max Meyer, uh, Asa Lacy, and Emerson Hancock? Man, yeah, the. Um... I would say Lacey is probably you're probably looking at something like Blake Snell, where the command is not great. His his how many innings he's working is is maybe a little bit more limited, but the rate stats are elite. Um, and then the the two guys where it, I'm less sure uh, are Meyer and Hancock. Meyer. Myers, most of Myers' career, he's just worked as a reliever. So what we saw this spring where he's like up to 100, sitting 96-plus with like a plus-plus slider and an average changeup but below command, not really holding his stuff deep into games, you know, although we only saw him over four starts. So it's an early season caveat, right? Like the context of the look by definition means that we just don't know either way. Um you know, maybe later in the year, Meyer would have backed off and sat like two to six over the course of an entire spring's workload, or maybe he would have shaken off that early season rust and just been humming at like 96 plus all spring deep into start six, seven innings. Like we really don't know. If that were the case, then uh, then it's probably him. Hancock is the other one where his stuff has not been optimized. His usage at Georgia was not optimized. This guy's best secondary pitch is his changeup, but he had a slider-heavy approach in college. What Seattle has been able to do with George Kirby and Logan Gilbert since acquiring them makes me think that the guy who might really blow up here after the draft is Hancock mm-hmm. as they seek to optimize his approach to pitching. The difference with Hancock is that the way his fastball works, its shape of movement is different than Kirby and Gilbert's who had more of the backspinning fastball. And so there, you know, whether, you, you know, I'm not as confident in Seattle being able to really make this guy go as I would be if his fastball worked like Kirby's and Gilbert's, but you know, Seattle's track record with developing pitching 
the last couple of years is really strong. So I think this is a really tough question to answer. Lacey is the guy who I've got like no doubt is just going to blow dudes away in pro ball. Uh, Meyer, how, whether it's in starter or reliever mode, um, I'm not as sure. And then Hancock is a guy who needs the most player dev love, but he's in an org that seems like he's going to get it. I don't think you can go wrong with any of these guys, but it's just sort of like depends on what you, what you, what you like and what you're comfortable with buying. Okay. I think, I think that's fair. I think, uh, I'm leaning Lacey and Hancock then because they, they were, uh, Meyer was the only of the three that you really put that potential reliever, uh, onto. I know the size at, at six feet is, has always drawn questions as well. And like you said, hasn't started a whole lot. So we'll see how, how it goes with those three, but I think Lacey and Hancock are the focus right now. I do want to talk about Zach Veen. He fell a bit, um, from, from where you had him, you had him in that group of six fifties, uh, and then also Torkelson at 55. So, but the lowest, even if he'd have been at the bottom of that group, was seven, and he went nine. So he he technically fell. Veen fell to nine, but he fell to Colorado. So uh, a bat falling to Colorado definitely has the fantasy community licking their chops. How good can Zach Veen be in Colorado? Was this a good fall for him because of the uh, obvious amazing environment? Yeah, it could be super duper crazy. Uh, this is your classic high variance high school bat. Uh, he does have that big strapping, like six foot three frame, where you know you can body comp him to Mabin or Jason Worth or whoever. Like it is that type of long term power projection frame. And uh, yeah, just wire to wire for me, Veen was either in that top tier of high school or in a tier of his own. Um, because of how he performed against elite pitching last summer, which was not as good as Robert Hassel from a back from like a bat to ball standpoint. Uh, but just like from a frame based power projection standpoint, he sort of stands alone. And that combined with how relatively advanced this tool is like makes me super, super optimistic about him hitting like in the middle of an order. And then, yeah, being in Colorado, it could be nuts. Like it could be like 35 plus homers. Uh, you're probably going to wait a while. We know how Colorado barbecues prospects low and slow. Barbecues, I love it. So accurate. Yeah. And then jerks them around. It's, it's like they're at a barbecue. They bring in the food. You get ready to eat. Like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Hang on, hang on. We got to put back on the grill. We got a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Uh, I, I love that, uh, that terminology for them. So yeah, so, high school bat too. So you're talking four or five years, right? Right, and it's also going to be weird. Colorado doesn't have an AZL team. They're the only team with a spring training facility in Arizona that doesn't have an AZL team. They would typically send someone like Veen out to Boise, uh, like you know, a, a short-season advanced rookie affiliate, rather than keep them on the complex. But as the minors, the shape of the minors changes, and the way, uh, especially this season development for players like this might change means that maybe we will see ball in the complex for the Rockies and they're sort of playing left-handed in this situation uh, because that's not a thing that they're used to doing. Like there's just not activity on the salt river, like the Rocky side of the salt river complex during the summer. Um, and there it seems like there's going to be this summer and fall. So we'll see how he develops. Yeah. This is definitely someone who's, who's just, you know, based on his own profile and the way the Rockies do it is absolutely a long-term uh, investment. But yeah, like the ceiling is super duper crazy. 
So we've seen in years past, like every once in a while, like a Brandon Finnegan or Chris Sale make it up to the major leagues the year they were drafted. Uh, obviously, with no minor leagues uh, happening, you know, in a traditional form this year, that's not going to happen. But who are some of the first rounders that could get up quickly once minor league systems uh, do resume next year? Well, if we have this taxi squad uh, format later this summer, I think there's a chance that we might see some of these guys uh, this year. Like, That'd be interesting. If you're the Cubs and you took Burl Caraway, the lefty reliever from Dallas Baptist, where you did in the second round, like that guy's got big league power lefty relief stuff right now. Like it's 94 to 97, it has that vertical action on the fastball and like the vertical downward movement on the breaking ball. It is no doubt blow you away lefty relief stuff right now. If you're confident in this guy throwing strikes and you're motivated competitively by the situation on your big league team, which I think the Cubs would be. Oh yeah. The Cubs big league bullpen has played on the waiver wire. Like they've, they've worked hard to kind of patchwork that together. Like this is the type of guy who I think might pitch this summer. So bro Caraway with the Cubs uh, is one. Max Meyer was supposed to be that guy. Like we all anticipated he would be that guy if the Blue Jays would have drafted him, given what their motivations are, what they need at the big league level on the pitching staff, Mm -hmm. uh, being able to to put him in the bullpen in the taxi squad right away, maybe use him right away. Uh, I don't know if Miami is as motivated to do something like that as Toronto would be, but from a skills perspective, Meyer is certainly uh, on the short list of guys who I'd feel good about doing it this year. Um, and then the other one was Clayton Beater, who the Dodgers ended up getting in the second comp round at pick 66. Uh, this is a guy whose stuff works like Nick Anderson and Colin Poche, and he's like high strikeout relievers. He's four to seven with a plus plus breaking ball like it is again that big time vertical movement relief profile he came out uh carving as a starter at texas tech this year he had tommy john as an underclass missed the whole year then pitched his sophomore year out of the bullpen and then came out as a starter this year and was holding his stuff uh again it's like four to seven touching eight or nine with a plus uh plus breaking ball it's just like the track record of him throwing strikes is really short he's had a surgery already these were things impacting his stock but from a stuff perspective, this dude could pitch in the bullpen right now. Um, obviously, the, the Dodgers bullpen is a little more crowded. But yeah, these are the guys who like the stuff is ready right now. If he's going to put them in the bullpen, I, these are the names to watch. That's interesting. I'm, I'm not surprised, of course, that a lot of that is is pitching. In fact, I think it was exclusively pitching. I'd heard um, a little bit of rumbling about potential um, Reed Detmers and Garrett Crochet as lefties. From college, yep. too. Any truth to that? Are they on the cusp there, possibly, as well, based on yep. their team needs? Absolutely. I Those are the two with the way the Angels starting pitching has been so injured um, and the way they've tried to funnel, uh, you know, these types of guys. Detmers has that level of pitchability where, uh, like, Jaime Berea or uh, Griffin Canning, like, it is a four-pitch mix, advanced pitchability. The Angels have pushed these guys historically to try to backfill for this often injured pitching staff. 
Uh, yes, Reed Detmers is absolutely, uh, again, you know, it's a good fit from, for, for his skills, and the team seems motivated to do it. And then, yeah, Crochet, same deal. Um, upper 90s, plus-plus breaking ball from the left side, probable reliever, or at least there's an extreme amount of risk that he's a reliever, and that team is motivated to compete. Those are ac- you know, two excellent candidates for this as well. Awesome. Um, one last thing that you said four to seven, I think you mean that that's 94 to 97, right? Am I reading the terminology correctly? For Beater, yeah. Like he's, okay. he parked at 94 to 97 with the fast, with the fastball. I'm just making so, sure everyone else knows the cool terminology. I like, I like that cutting off the nine and just saying, he's, I'm going to start saying that now. I'm going to start saying, I'm, I'm, I'm two to six. It's 32 to 36 though. That's the thing. So I don't know if, if people just know that inherently, or if I can just say two to six and they know it's 32 to 36. But anyway, next question from, uh, from Justin here. Go ahead, Justin. Uh, let's see. Uh, we, I mean, you talked about Zach Veen, obviously being a high upside guy, but which high school other than him is, uh, kind of your fantasy high upside in that first round? Uh, you got Mick Abel, the, who was the top high school pitcher on my board, who went to Philly in the middle of round one. He's been known about since he was like a rising, you know, the summer between his freshman and sophomore year of high school. He was basically 1994, um, as like a six foot five inch, you know, prototypical framed high schooler, uh, has since, you know, had the velo has been up and down, uh, two to five, touch a seven sometimes. And then uh, late last summer, it was down a little bit. And then he never had a chance to get going this spring because in Oregon, they just hadn't yet started the high school season before the, su- the shutdown. But it's, you know, mid-90s with a projectable frame. We'll show you a plus uh, breaking ball. We'll show you a plus changeup. So that's Mick Abel. It's a pretty typical high school pitching prospect. And there are a lot of those guys. This is just the guy who's, who all the ingredients are turned all the way up, like on 10. Um, Nick Bitsko is the other one. Yep. The Rays got towards the back of round one. He seemed, uh, like, seemed like the Orioles were trying to float him to their comp round pick, but the Rays had a first rounder and a comp rounder and therefore had the, the bonus pool flexibility to get him done at pick 24. He's a lot like Abel, um, but is more of a tip of the iceberg guy. He reclassified in January. He was going to be a 2021 draftee. Uh, reclassified in January to be 2020. So he's only 18 right now is one of the youngest guys in the draft. Um, again, only threw one bullpen before the draft, before the shutdown, because the, the high school season in the Philly area had not started yet. Um, uh-huh. but, but pitched in, you know, indoor facilities uh, with a radar gun, with a rap soto uh, between the shutdown and the draft. And so was sending pitch data to, to teams. Uh, through the media and um and yeah like it's just like able where it's premium fastball breaking ball quality strikes with the fastball frame is a little bit more mature than Abel's, but he's almost a full year younger than Abel, and so there might be more velo in there still um and then austin hendrick is the other guy high school outfielder from western pa the pittsburgh area this is a guy with the most raw power projection in the entire draft class uh, like is the best has the best bat speed is like the most elite uh, rotational athlete of uh, of all the high schoolers in this class. He did swing and miss quite a bit last summer, so this is a high risk hit tool guy, uh, and that risk is sort of uh, inflated by the fact that he is 19 already, so it was a little bit older than the pitching he faced 
last summer on the showcase circuit, but still swung and missed a lot. Was tinkering with his swing a lot last summer. Um, so maybe that is the reason. But this is like one of those, um, you know, 40-plus home run raw power. It's just the hit tool is so scary that some teams were apprehensive about it. Uh, but from a ceiling standpoint, yeah, he's absolutely high on the list. That was Austin Hendrick from Cincinnati uh, and then a group of pitchers there. Uh, when I hear Nick Bitsko, if they say his whole name, I hear Nabisco. And then yep. on commercials, they would go Nabisco, ding. So that's why I said ding. And I'm always going to say it. If you say his whole name, Nick Bitsko, I'm going to say ding. It's going to happen. So anybody uh, should get used to that. I'm just going to say. Um, one guy you didn't mention that I do want to ask a little bit about is Ed Howard, the shortstop pick from the Cubs. Now, just because you didn't mention him as as one of you know as the top guy or or one of those three four top guys, uh, does he still carry a lot of upside up the middle fantasy wise, or is it the fact that he's a shortstop makes his whole profile and he's he's more of one of those better real life prospects than he is fantasy? What do you think of Ed Howard for the Cubs? He is more of a a better real life prospect than a fantasy prospect. This isn't a guy who I expect to hit for. Uh, the type of like power or steal the type of bait and like accumulate stolen bases that drives as much fantasy value for hitters. Um, there is a chance that he grows into like something close to average game power, but it is mostly that this is the best high school defensive shortstop in this class. And he made a ton of contacts last summer that it is, there's a combination of stability and upside here most of the upside is being derived from where he fits in the defensive spectrum rather than like big time power potential. So uh, Ed Howard and Robert Hassel Hassel was the first uh, high school player drafted. They are both more like this for me. They are stable hit tool guys who play a premium defensive position. I, I imagine that there's still, there's still real fantasy value there and I still like them uh, as fantasy uh, prospects. But as far as the ceiling is concerned, I think both of them have relatively limited uh, power ceilings. And so um, while I prefer them both as prospects to uh, some of the like the riskier guys like Austin Hendrick uh, and like Jordan Walker, who the Cardinals took in the first round, another guy who's just got gigantic raw power um, and is young and like has a giant frame and all that, um, they are their ceilings are, are probably a little bit lesser. Okay, I think that's fair. Justin, I snuck that one in. I'm still going to go ahead on this next one here about Jared Kelly. He was much higher on boards than the 47th slot that he went to the uh, to the White Sox. He was 12th on MLB's board, so he really stuck out uh, watching their coverage. I think you had him in the 20s, uh, 28. So, you know, even that's still a fall, a fall down to 47. What happened with Jared Kelly? Was it his Texas commit? Uh, that made the high schooler fall or, or, or something else or a combination of things with the right-handed Jared Kelly? Yeah, so definitely sounds like a combination of things. We'll watch and see what his bonus is. I still expect him to get paid um, with a bonus that reflects something close to slot at where you know, I had him ranked. But, um, but yeah, so in general, prep pitching is the category that tends to fall on the day of the draft. Uh, and Kelly is the type of high school pitcher who some teams are just less on than others. He is a bigger bodied dude. There's not much of a frame to project on here. He's kind of maxed out already. Uh, so there's that. That's number one. Then there's a fastball seam orientation uh, issue where, you know, as far as like if you're talking about Mackenzie Gore, 
and some of the elite uh, Tariq Skubal. The reason that these guys' fastballs play as well as they do is because not only do they throw hard, but uh, from a seam uniformity and spin axis standpoint, they're creating uh, like more spin on the ball, better spin on the ball. The pitch has angle that creates vertical movement that misses bats in the zone. Kelly doesn't have that stuff going for him yet. Um, and also from a, from a breaking ball standpoint, Kelly's curveball is like pretty fringy, maybe average, uh, probably peaks close to average. His best secondary weapon is his changeup. Now his changeup is absolutely dirty. Uh, it's, I've got a future seven on it. It's, it's a six, you know, it's plus already. Um, and he throws really hard. Like he goes right at hitters with 93 to 96 and has this plus changeup. And it's just these other components uh, that are lacking. And some teams really prioritize those components. And then once his signability started to become an issue, it started to, to get to a point where it was, t- was going to take a team that wanted to pay him and also cared less about the components that he lacks. Um, and the White Sox are a little bit more traditional from a scouting standpoint. Uh, they're a little less apt to look at pitch data and prioritize that overall. Uh, than some other teams and based on what they did the rest of their draft it seems like they cut some deals like Addison Coffee, who they took later in the draft is like gonna be way 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 under slot he's a junior college conversion arm who uh like my most of my reports on him are as a hitter um okay so and that's such a cool name too Addison Coffee. I, I want to be called Addison Coffee now it's, you, it's irrelevant to anything but it's a great name if he had the coolest bat at the area codes a couple of years ago too, Addison Coffee did. Like I think if you YouTube it, I've got video of him from area codes. He had one of those bats that looks like um, like one of those French little pastry sticks. I forget what they're called. <laughs> a uh, baguette? No, no. Like it's a little pastry. Like you use it to stir your coffee. It's got like uh, like hazelnut cream in the uh, middle. Oh, like a ladyfinger or? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, uh, man, people are yelling it at their <laughs> at, at their thing. You keep talking. Yeah, I'm going to find that. That's my goal now. I care nothing about the rest of this baseball stuff. I'm going to find what the heck those things are called. All right. Well, I'll, I'll move on then, and let's uh, let's talk about maybe uh, an upside hitter, an upside pitcher, kind of from the the later rounds, rounds three through five. Okay. Yeah. The um, let's see. Uh, if I can try to think of some guys off the top of my head, well, if I click on our thing and look at some hitters. So hitters round three through five, okay. In the third round, you've got David Calabrese, who the Angels took. He's like a lefty bat center fielder from Canada. He's one of the younger hitters in the draft. He's like 17.7 on draft day. Uh, That seems to be a variable that drives what the Angels do in the draft. Uh, His frame is not that projectable. He's like 5'11", more bat-to-ball oriented. Uh, Was with Team Canada during... um, their little spring training stint in uh, in Florida and performed well there. So he has like some leadoff type traits. Uh, he's one to watch there with the Angels in the third round. The Phillies took Casey Martin in the third round, who's like crazy tooled up college uh, infielder from Arkansas. Elite runner, has, has uh, above average to plus pull power, but his approach is terrible. Like literally swings at everything. Uh, it's crazy tools. If the approach gets uh, manicured, then there's big time upside there with Casey Martin and the Phillies. Jordan and Wogu, who the Cubs took in the third round, Michigan center fielder. Uh, the guy that the the Astros took 
early. I think they took him in the second or third round. Jordan Brewer from Michigan. He was Michigan center fielder on their College World Series team last year and then was replaced by Nwogu this season. Uh, Nwogu's got big raw power. His swing is a little wonky, but the Cubs have made good changes to Nico Horner's swing. Excuse me, Brandon Davis's swing. You know, over the last couple of years, this is a guy who needs that, but is with an org that has been able to do that. So watch J- Jordan and Wogu with the Cubs in the third round. Uh, and then you've got, like, if you're in an OBP league, look at Trevor Halver, the Yankees third round pick, big time walk rate guy from Arizona State. Um, you've got PD Halpin to the, in the third round to, uh, to the Indians. Probably over slot there. They cut a deal in the first round with Carson Tucker under slot to be able to facil- facilitate some over slot uh, picks later in the draft. One of them is Petey Halpin, another potential leadoff type player uh, taken in the third round. And then, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, Blaze Jordan, the Red Sox nice. third rounder, is one of these like big time power hitting first baseman. Uh, the Red Sox took him as a third baseman. I'm not as on Blaze Jordan. He's another one of these high schoolers who reclassified a year early. So he's like 17 and a half on draft day. Super Uh, But the body is more maxed out. He's like famous, you know, this kid has basically had the same body since he was 15 uh, and just had monster raw power at age 15, more so than any of his peers. And then from a physical projection standpoint, he's kind of plateaued. Um, He's one of these guys who draft models that don't adjust for this type of thing, I worry that they don't correct for, because, yeah, he's 17 and a half, but really he's built like a 19, 20-year-old, and I think there needs to be some more manual adjustment um, than seems to be occurring for players like this in models. Because you can't tack on the the usual projectability with a 17-year-old because Blaze Jordan's already there is what you're saying, right? Right. Like my, I did a study that was focused on shortstops, but, uh, but in general, these, these shortstops from the time they were high scorers through when they're 21 are putting on about 30 pounds. And Blaze is 17 and a half and is already 220 pounds. So if he, you know, if you add 30 pounds on his frame, like, yeah, maybe he's grown into more power, but he's almost certainly just playing first base or DH at that point. Yeah. And so there's not really a Goldilocks zone where you can grow into a bunch of power, but also stay at a premium position with someone like blaze. Uh, whereas like, you know, some of these later round guys like Mayo, I mentioned with the Orioles, uh, Mac Wainwright, who Cincinnati took in the fourth round is another one of these like really projectable frame type guys. Uh, blaze Jordan isn't that type of guy, but he, you know, he does have big power. He has performed in the showcase circuit. Um, so like you can, you know, it's a pick your poison type thing. There are definitely people who like this profile. It's just not for me. I actually saw Blaze Jordan. He was part of a um, high school home run derby at the home run derby last year. I can't remember who he faced off against. It was it was him and another kid, but the name Blaze Jordan uh, definitely stands out. You know, it was pro- I remember you know like Hendrick hitting that event, Jordan Walker um, hitting that event as well. Oh, Jordan Walker really. Rings a bell there too, I but think uh, yeah. So th- and that was cool to see. That, I mean, the home run derby was amazing, and and Blaze Jordan was smashing. So I mean, there there's definitely some pop there. Uh, all right, so that's excellent stuff. Thank you so much for answering all our questions there on the players. We're going to move it to the draft itself now. As a Tigers fan, I was pretty pissed about cutting it down to five rounds this year. 
uh, because yeah. my favorite team had had the number one pick, which obviously carries over into all the other rounds. After a while, it doesn't uh, carry as much of an advantage, but still going from what well, it's 40 now normally, right? Because it used to be yes. like 70 or in the 60s for sure, down to 40 this year to five. Do you think that a move to a smaller draft is a permanent change? And will it be as small as five? Because, I mean, that just seemed like such a drastic cut. I know they lost a lot of development time to review guys and no uh, uh, almost no high school seasons. Like you mentioned, uh, Philly hadn't even started theirs. No College World Series. But that seems like such a drastic cut. Are we in for a smaller draft from this point forward? Again, in a fictional world where baseball actually exists. <laughs> yeah, the... Uh... I don't think it'll only be five rounds, but the but MLB when they agreed upon the format for this year, MLB does have the right to reduce the 2021 draft to 20 rounds. Um, given that we're likely to see minor league contraction, I do think that we will see a reduced draft. I think 20 rounds is probably, if I had to, you know, make the odds on what the most likely uh, course of action was going forward. It probably is something close to like 20 rounds uh, permanently. I don't know if there's eventually going to be an international draft. I mean, there will be, but if it will get folded into this one or if they will, if they will be two separate entities, I'm not totally sure that might impact the length of uh, the draft, but uh, I do think, yes. And you're right. Like it did harm uh, teams like the Tigers and the Orioles, teams who need an influx of talent. Yeah, they need to volume, too. Yeah, not not just high-end talent, but just the volume of it. Exactly, exactly. And it does – it did limit the room for creativity, right? Like um, in a 40-round draft, you see teams – you know, some picks are wasted on guys who are like the nephews of someone's, you know, cross-checker or whatever. Um, but you also do see – 300k 125k 600k bonus uh high schoolers who end up going on day three who uh you know become interesting within a year for whatever reason guys like bryce bush in the white Sox system kendall logan simmons in the philly system these like mid six figure uh high school bonus guys who go on day three of the draft some somewhere between round 11 and 40 and it takes like the first two days of the draft for teams to say, Oh, okay, here's what fell to us. We got a bunch of college players that we like. We went under slot a little bit and we have this much money to play with. Let's start making calls, like use our area scouts to assess the signability of these high school players. We like over the next 24 hours. And we can maybe get some uh, players who on the board for me would be like 35 plus future value 40 future value type of players to add volume to our farm system by signing a bunch of these Mm -hmm. mid six figure high schoolers. And you see, like, if you look at the Braves 2019 draft, that's what they did. They decided we need volume in our system rather than ceiling. We have all these guys at the very top, Kyle Wright, Bryce Wilson and all that, but we're shallow as far as the depth is concerned. Let's spread the love out and get a bunch of six figure high schoolers. Um, and then a bunch of those guys went to pro ball after the Braves signed them and looked really good and really interesting. And it just wasn't an option for teams this year. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it, we'll, we'll just see a 20 round draft. I think moving forward, I think it'll certainly be more than five rounds. This year was, was motivated by a lot of different factors. Some of it was just controlling costs. 
And some of it was a perceived lack of certainty because a bunch of these kids just didn't play at all. Mm-hmm. And none of them played very much. But, you know, like, scouts have been working on this draft class. Like I said at the onset of this pod, it's, it's almost a year to the day, if not more, that we've all collectively been working on the draft. Like, PG National starts in Mobile, Alabama on June 17th. Uh, and it is, you know, the first big-time event for 2021 draft scouting. Uh, and it was here at Chase Field where the Diamondbacks play last year, and it typically is held at the Trop and just won't be held in either of those locations this year for obvious reasons. Alabama a little bit more lax with some of this stuff, and so the event can can occur. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like it'll be, I think, 20 rounds going forward, but I do think that MLB is looking to, to cut costs on the amateur end. Now, uh, before I let Justin get to his next question, you might have already done this, and I might have missed it, so I apologize if I'm asking about something you wrote. But um, if you haven't already, do you plan on doing something about all the undrafted guys? Because I've heard that, like, KC's doing well in that. Is there going to be a roundup of, like, here's X number of guys to look at from the uh, from, from the remaining talent that was, uh, that was signed? How, how are we going to go about classifying all of that talent? Right. Uh, if any of the if anyone signs for 20k who belongs on the board, uh, then they will just end up on the board. If a team okay. is signing 20k guys on mass, um, then maybe it'll be worth a post. Um, but basically, the 20k types they have an increased emphasis, uh, like a, a bigger spotlight cast upon them this year because we've only had a five round draft, and so a greater percentage of this process is getting these guys for 20 K, but in a draft with 40 rounds, these types of guys, seniors, mostly uh, are going to sign for about this much anyway, and get almost no fanfare because realistically they're all org players. They're players who have interesting pitch data who uh, maybe a year from now with performance in the minors, um, pro scouts, seeing them in a pro context rather than at like East Tennessee state or wherever, Maybe they end up on a prospect list a year from now. Uh, I will say like of the very few of the names that I've seen sign or guys who I know about off the top of my head is a lot of like weird senior types. Uh, So I don't anticipate doing a post. If anyone who belongs on the board uh, gets signed, then they will just end up going on there. I will say the interesting thing to look for is watching for uh, NPB to sign guys. Yes. 200-300K bonuses for players. To try to players who otherwise would have gone back to school probably rather than sign for 20k just go um, over to japan and, and get things started for four uh, or five to 10x what they could get from from major league teams right right and then hope to uh hope to sign hope to, to pitch well over there and then come back after six years and be an unrestricted free agent at age 28 or 29 rather than 30 31 32 which if you sign, especially if you go back to school and wait a year, yeah. you sign, you get drafted, you're in the minors for two years. If things go well, it's, you know, it's only two years. Hit the big leagues at age 24, and then you're hitting free agency at, 20, or at uh, 30, 31, and not getting paid. If you go to Japan right now, your clock, you know, you're betting on yourself uh, but, uh, to do well and then come back over, but you get your 200, 300K right now pitch well and then you're hitting free agency back over here at like 28 like maybe that's just the best move for some of these guys yeah that might um, not be a, a bad idea there 
if there's two undrafted free agents to watch, uh, the one is Sam Ruta, who signed with the Padres, who's like a big framed lefty high school bat who was committed to Army, uh, who they signed for 20K. Yeah, like weird. Um, you know, I don't know if if his commitment had, you know, in the state of the world had anything to do with the kid's decision making. But I know if, if my kid were thinking about going to the uh, to the military academy and like the world were looking like it was right now, like maybe I'd be like, hey, maybe consider playing baseball. Um, and then Mac Mueller, a senior from Baylor, who was like, you know, bounced around, went to Rice, then went to a junior college, then went to Baylor. Like another guy with like a bigger frame who I think is an interesting long-term developmental uh, player, like a weird backstory that took him to Baylor. Uh, yeah, his name is Mac Mueller. I think he's like born in in Germany too. I think he was born in like an Air Force base in Germany. Uh, those are Eno. my 20K signs who when they signed, I was just like, oh, I know about that guy. Eno will love Mac Mueller then if he's if he's from yeah. Germany. By the way, I figured out what the, uh, I think, what, what the bat might have been for the uh, player we were talking about. Um Pirouettes. I put a picture in in our uh, Skype uh, chat there. I believe that's what they're called. The uh, the wafer that's like yep. rolled over with chocolate in the middle. It's excellent. They're they're very, they're very tasty. I forget whose bat we were saying looked like that. Was it Blaze? Was it Blaze's bat? Addison Addison oh, Coffee. Addison, Addison Coffee. That's right. Had a cool yeah, bat. So, so that's the most important still, takeaway here, folks. Is that if you search Addison, Addison Coffee, Coffee has on, cool gear. On YouTube it shows up. You can see his. Uh, you can see his bat, and it absolutely looks like a pirouette. There you go. That's perfect. All right, Justin, go ahead. Is there anybody that you're worried is at risk of not signing? I mean, with, with the <clears throat> draft changing, there was a lot of people or a lot of uh, talk that players may elect to go back to college for years. Is there any players that were drafted that you're worried or pretty sure is going to head back to uh, college? Particularly in the upper, what, mm -hmm. 60 picks or so? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think probably not the, the sole college guy who before the draft, I was worried about, uh, not signing was Gage Workman with Arizona state just because like he was still, he was not even 21 yet. He had a rough start to 2020 when a lot of the, uh, like industry was into see him because it was like taking place during spring training when he was struggling in front of everybody. You know, you like you get done with your big league game in the middle of the day, and you know you go catch Arizona State at night. Oh, um, and he was he was not maximizing an opportunity. Yeah. That's tough. And then, like with Alika Williams and the other ASU guys getting drafted, the word among the area scouts here in the four corners was that ASU was saying, "Hey, come back to school. You'll play shortstop every day next year. You'll still only be 21." Like, but he already agreed to a deal. Um, you know. I had been told that Nick Lofton, the Royals comp rounder, uh, the shortstop from Baylor, that he had an overslot deal ticketed for somewhere in the comp round uh, and that it was kind of scaring teams away from him late in the first round who liked him on skills but were scared to, to draft him and dare him to take slot when he had like a three-plus million dollar deal waiting for him in the comp round. I don't know if that deal was with Kansas City or not. Or if Kansas City was just like, screw it, let's take him and try to sign him. If it's if that's the situation and they were just like, screw it, let's do it. Um, and like it was San Diego or somebody who had like a deal for him in the comp or, you know, who knows who it could have been. Tanner Burns, maybe uh, that the, the guy that the, the Indians drafted, maybe the Indians wanted Lofton to fall to them. Uh, I don't know. 
Uh, but so like maybe kind of watch Nick Lofton and see what happens there. It seemed like he had a deal for well over slot that maybe the Royals the Royals poached him, um, and that maybe that situation is at risk because the agent and the player are pissed that they did that. Uh, so that's a possibility. Dylan Dingler, who was the Tigers' second round no. pick in the very top round, the he was you know like based on skills, a lot of teams had him closer to the middle of the back of the first round. Uh, but that, you know, he might have fallen for medical stuff. And if, if that gets in, um, if like, if there's a post-draft medical that occurs and the Tigers are like, Oh no, like this is worse than we thought, then maybe something happens there, but I seriously doubt it. Okay. Uh, and I think those are the only two, as I'm looking at it, that I'd be like, Oh, and then maybe JT Ginn, the Mets second rounder, right? Like, this guy didn't sign out coming out of high school. He was a first rounder uh, of the Dodgers coming out of high school. Mm-hmm. Didn't sign. He's advised by Scott Boris. Uh, you know, this was his draft eligible sophomore year, and he was firmly in the middle of the first round when the season started. Then he broke in his first start and had Tommy John. So, uh, you know, the Mets, it seemed like they mortgaged the rest of their draft to, to take him here in the middle of the second round uh, to be able to sign him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, much of their draft is under slot, but you know, just based on his history, who's negotiating for him, the fact that he's big time stock down guy because of the pre-draft surgery, uh, perhaps he's at risk as well. So, like, I don't have any intel that these guys are really at risk, but just based on the sequence of events that led up to the draft, they're the ones who make logical sense uh, to be so. You are remarkably good at your job, uh, Justin. Any other questions here as we're wrapping up with Eric Loggenhagen? No, I think we uh, we got a lot of great information for the listeners. Yeah, this, this is fantastic. Thank you. We kept you even longer than we said, so I appreciate that. This is great. Like, like I said earlier, deserved break coming up for you. Take your time off. Uh, kick up your feet. Enjoy the heat. Or stay inside and don't enjoy the heat because it's not that enjoyable when it's 106. Let's be honest. Even as somebody who prefers heat over cold. I mean, come on. That's, that's, that's too hot. But um, all right. Well, uh, Eric, thank you so much for, uh, for taking us through the 2020 draft. We'll start to see you guys get signed and then if we get any sort of league we'll figure out what sort of uh situation happens with all the taxi stuff justin great talking with you as well be back with you later this week eric thank you one more time you guys have a good one take care